TJ, did you know that Shadowfell like apples? Wait, what? That was a Death Note reference. Oh. <laughs> I get it now. <laughs> Please leave me not getting the joke into the, in the final cut. Welcome to Beyond the Character Sheet, a podcast about creating and playing fun characters for Dungeons & Dragons, from stats to table antics. Each episode, we'll talk through character sheets, item sets, and points of personality that can make your next adventure one to remember. Welcome, listener, to another episode of Beyond the Character Sheet. I'm Sean. I'm here with TJ. Hello. And today we are going to be talking about, I think, TJ, this is your idea for a corrupted youth character. So go ahead and intro us. Yeah. So basically my idea was playing a child player character uh, or a, a young player character at the very least, maybe preteens or teens, who, due to some sort of outside influence, is being slowly corrupted. And the idea was that they would start out as a good aligned character and then throughout the course of the campaign, that would shift. Okay, cool. So I um, didn't know you were bringing an arc into this. Uh, my role-playing notes that I want to talk about later, I also had some arcs in mind. So good news, guys. Later you get to listen to me and TJ fight over which arc is better. Yeah, sounds fun. In that case, uh, first off will be the character sheets. And TJ, that is, of course, your domain being the resident expert. So go ahead and take us through the numbers. Yeah, so basically um, I did what I always do. I made one build using the standard array and one using rolled stats. Um, so for the standard array build, for the abilities, I went with an 8 in strength, a 14 in dexterity, a 12 in constitution, a 13 intelligence, a 10 Wisdom, and a 15 Charisma. And I think that these fit a child or a young person um, to have a low strength and a low Wisdom. I would say that it's also possible to have a low Constitution, but I would always advise against dumping Constitution because that's how your character dies. Yeah, I generally don't know what I'm doing when I play Dungeons & Dragons, and I know, like, never dump con. Yeah. So um, for the race for this build, I went with a tiefling. So I was thinking a tiefling child. Uh, for the background, I went with urchin. So I'm thinking a tiefling orphan who grew up on the street, not really having anybody to take care of them, and then suddenly was uh, adopted by maybe an aunt or uncle or a grandma or grandpa, something along those lines. And that person is actually a fiend in disguise. Interesting. So here's an idea that just popped into my head, and I don't want to jump too far ahead because I know we usually do the narrative stuff in the second half of the episode. Right. What if this person that takes them in isn't actually related to them at all? What if they're like the person that runs the local orphanage? Yeah. I was thinking that the person is a fiend in disguise posing as a relative, and they're not actually a relative. Okay. But um, that could also be a thing where... They are just not even bothering posing as a relative. They're just like, the fiend happens to run the local orphanage. Yeah, they're posing as a you know civil servant, so they have access to all these young minds and bodies that are just freely given to them in trust. Yeah, yeah. But that's more for the DMs than for the players. Yeah, but um, no, that's a good idea. So the idea here is to go 
fully into Fiend Pact Warlock. So the class is Warlock. At uh, first level, you get your subclass option, and we would go the Fiend, your otherworldly patron. With that, we get a couple things. We get a few extra spells. We get 10 extra spells that we have access to that other Warlocks don't. And with this, we get Burning Hands, Command, Blindness and Deafness, Scorching Ray, Fireball, Stinking Cloud, Fire Shield, Wall of Fire, Flame Strike, and Hallow. And a lot of these are very offensive spells. Some of them can be pretty controlling as well, like Command or Stinking Cloud. But the other things that we get here are Dark One's Blessing. So Dark One's Blessing says, starting at first level, when you reduce a hostile creature to zero hit points, you gain temporary hit points equal to your Charisma modifier plus your Warlock level. So that is always going to get stronger as we gain levels. Okay. Then at sixth level, you get Dark One's Own Luck. When you make an ability check or saving throw, you can use this feature to add a d10 to your roll. You can do so after seeing the initial roll, but before any of the roll's effects occur. Wow, that timing alone seems pretty handy there. Yeah. At 10th level, we get Fiendish Resilience. Uh, You can choose one damage type when you finish a short or long rest. You gain resistance to that damage type until you choose a different one with this feature. Damage from magical weapons or silver weapons ignore this resistance. So basically, there's nothing really oozing evil here. Everything is just kind of subtly influenced by this dark presence. Open for interpretation. Open for interpretation. Maybe raises some eyebrows, but doesn't call the character out as clearly an agent of something evil. Right. Going up to that level 10, uh, we get a few things. We get our um, pack magic, where we get all of our spells. I would recommend just taking spells that a wizard would cast. So I'm not going to go through all the spells that I personally would pick. Pick wizardy stuff. That's really the the goal of this character, because um, something I didn't touch on yet, uh, the idea is that this character believes that they are becoming a wizard, that they are being trained to be a wizard. So just pick wizard stuff. Yeah, okay. So the character is is a tragic figure who's who's been duped into it. Right. They're not necessarily just being taken in and falling prey to trusting someone or something that maybe has an ulterior motive, but they might actually be actively participating in it because to them, they think they're going to be Harry Potter. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So starting at second level as a warlock, we get Eldritch Invocations. I made a few choices here. I went with uh, Agonizing Blast because I feel like it's kind of a must for most Warlocks. It allows you to add your Charisma modifier to the damage Eldritch Blast deals on hit. And Eldritch Blast is like the bread and butter of the Warlock in general. Okay. And then I went with Eyes of the Runekeeper because it allows you to read all writing. And for a wizardy character, I felt like that was really cool. And maybe that could be, again, jumping ahead to the the role-playing and narrative side of it, maybe that's one of the things that kind of baits the character into the deal is like, hey, you're wandering around this city and there's so many things you can't read. Wouldn't it be nice if you could? Yeah. And maybe the maybe the the young character has a desire for knowledge. Maybe they wish they knew more. Yep. Like you say, they think they're becoming a wizard. What they really want is knowledge, and what they're being given is power that sets the hook of corruption. Right. And speaking of uh, the character wanting knowledge, you reminded me of something that I skipped over. Skill proficiencies. Because I did go with the urchin background, you automatically get stealth and sleight of hand. 
and you also get proficiency in the disguise kit and thieves tools, which I think is very useful. Yeah. Uh, you get to pick a couple of skills that you're proficient with, as you do with all classes. And I went with Arcana and Investigation because I wanted this character ha to have this thirst for knowledge, and I wanted this character to want to learn how to use magic. Um, but that being said, for the Pact Boon, I went with Pact of the Tome because, you know, your caretaker who is teaching you how to become a wizard, giving you a book of spells is pretty f***ing cool, right? Okay. It's the vessel through which these two characters form their connection is what you're saying. That this this book is kind of the, the blood signature on the contract is what you're saying. Yes, when you reach level three, you get a Pact Boon. And you can choose between the Pact of the Blade, Pact of the Chain, Pact of the Talisman, or Pact of the Tome. And that is a gift from your patron. Gotcha. Yeah, I think a Tome suits what we're creating here pretty well then. Right, right. So with Pact of the Tome, as we gain levels, we get access to... Well, first of all, it lets you learn three cantrips from any class. Nice. Which is pretty cool. Choose wizardy cantrips. That's really my recommendation yeah as you were saying before this this character thinks they're going to be a wizard if they are not already right the invocations that i went with were all of the ones that feed on the um the tome so all the ones that buff your tome which are book of ancient secrets which allows you to cast ritual spells as rituals like a wizard does gift of the protectors which allows you to have a page in your book that people can write their name in and when any creature whose name is on the page is reduced to zero hit points but not killed outright, that creature magically drops to one hit point instead. This is like a reverse death note. Right. It's reverse death note. Yes. And they have to write their own name in it and it protects them. And then I chose Farscribe, which is a very similar one. It lets you have a page where people can sign their name. And when they do, you can write messages to them from any distance. And they hear it in their mind. And then when they reply, it appears as text on the page. So those are the invocations that I went with. And then for the ability score improvements... Uh, for this build, I went with a skill expert, the skill expert feat. Uh, it gives you proficiency in one skill, expertise in another skill, and lets you increase one of your ability scores by one. Because I had an uneven charisma, I chose this to even out the charisma score, to give myself a plus one in charisma, took proficiency in history, and expertise in arcana, because I feel like a wizard would want expertise in arcana. Yeah, that makes sense. And then at the level eight ability score improvement, I just bumped the charisma up to 20. So we have max charisma. And max charisma would be valuable because we're a warlock, I don't have a lot of experience with magical characters. Charisma is kind of your base thing for that, right? So warlocks and sorcerers are charisma casters. So your charisma feeds your magic. Okay, so never dump con, and if you're a wizard, sorcerer, or warlock... Uh, wizard is intelligence, Oh, but sorcerer and warlock are charisma. I'm definitely paying attention. That's okay. So basically, this character is smart enough to understand that they want to learn magic um, and think that they are learning magic, but not smart enough to realize that all of their magic is fueled by their charisma. Okay, interesting. So the other thing that I wanted to talk about, and we didn't build this character to 14th level, but I want to talk about the 14th level ability because it's kind of the elephant in the room. In my opinion, this is where the corruption fully takes hold in your character's arc. Once you get the 14th level feature and you use it, you are evil. Okay, this is this is the gun to Batman. This is 
this is the line crossed. Yes. The 14th level ability is called Hurl Through Hell. Starting at 14th level, when you hit a creature with an attack, and that can be a weapon attack or an Eldritch Blast, like a spell attack, you can use this feature to instantly transport the target through the lower planes. The creature disappears and hurtles through a nightmare landscape. At the end of your next turn, the target returns to the space it previously occupied or the nearest unoccupied space. If the target is not a fiend, it takes 10d10 psychic damage as it reels from its horrific experience. So you are just straight up sending someone to hell to suffer. That is evil. That is, once you gain that ability from your patron, I feel like that is the moment that Anakin becomes Darth Vader. This could be maybe where the patron like reveals themselves to this youth character as, you know, oh, by the way, the the book I gave you was, you know, Mein Kampf. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right, exactly. (laughs) Um, so if the the patron finally reveals their hand and says, like, look, you've already come down this path with me. It's too late. Now, I want to pick your brain a little bit on this. Do you think a character really has crossed an irreversible point? Do you think this really is the event horizon? Do you think it would be possible for a character's arc to pick up this ability and still be redeemed, basically? I, I guess... There's always potential for them to, like, pick it up, gain this ability, use it, realize that they've done something horrible, and then renounce it. Um, And I think that could also be a very interesting arc. But I do think that at the point that they use it, they are doing something evil. Right. It is still a watershed ability. It is still something, yeah, once you've done it, there's there's no coming back from it but maybe it's not necessarily the end of the arc but it is absolutely going to be probably the lowest point yeah the lowest point that is a good way to put it uh moving on to the rolled build um for the abilities we actually rolled really well um we did get two stats that were negative but everything else was just amazing a nine and a seven which sucks but we also got 14 15 16 17 so i put the seven in strength because we are a child i put the 15 in dexterity 14 in constitution 16 in intelligence the nine in wisdom and the 17 in charisma and yeah that that seems to suit someone who is small not very strong and smart but maybe not very wise yeah they know enough to know what they are doing in terms of extracting the knowledge that's around them but maybe they're not really all that keen on on the the wise or where it's leading them right um so for race on this one i went with variant human because variant humans get a feat at level one and i think that there are two possibilities here I went with one, but then later on when we were talking before the episode, uh, you brought one to light that really seemed like it could work. So I went with Magic Initiate for Wizard because we think we're becoming a wizard. And with that, you get access to two cantrips from the wizard spell list and one first level spell that you can cast once a day. As an example, I went with Dancing Lights and Mage Hand for the cantrips, but really you just get access to two wizard cantrips. It can be whatever you want. And then for the first level spell, I am actually going to make a recommendation here. I would say either Magic Missile or Find Familiar. I like Find Familiar. Yeah. Because the the stuff you mentioned earlier, the two cantrips you mentioned earlier and Find Familiar suit the idea of maybe an adept urchin. Yeah. Someone who is on their own and has a little bit of innate ability and has learned a couple little tricks. 
Yes, and I like the idea of this urchin who has learned a few spells learning how to make themselves a friend. Yeah, that's really cute. Yeah. And there again, uh, an easy opening for the fiend to exploit. Right. Oh, you already have talent. Oh, you already want to expand your talent. Well, why don't you just go read this book of mine? Yep. Now, uh, here is where we're going to take a little bit of a turn because I actually chose a different warlock subclass for this one. I went with the Hexblade, which is a little weird, but I'll explain it. So rather than going with the Fiend, the Hexblade says, You have made your pact with a mysterious entity from the Shadowfell, a force that manifests itself in sentient magic weapons carved from the stuff of Shadow. So it says weapons, right? But I like the idea of it just being objects rather than forcing it to be weapons. Okay. So maybe something to bring up with your DM? Right. Yeah. So maybe just say, hey... Could my patron, instead of being a weapon of the Shadowfell, could it be a book of the Shadowfell? And then this urchin, this orphan living on the street, practicing a little bit of magic, steals a magic book, thinking that they will learn more spells from it. And then that book starts talking to them. TJ, did you know that Shadowfell like apples? Wait, what? That was a Death Note reference. Oh. <laughs> I get it now. <laughs> Please leave me not getting the joke into the in the final cut. So they have this this Shadowfell tome, which folds into what you were talking about with the previous build, where the the thing that really seals their pact is a book. Right. Exactly. So we will have the book from level one, and it will be talking to us and kind of teaching us magic, which is creepy. But if you want to become a wizard and you think this is the avenue to do it and you have a nine in wisdom, then maybe you'll listen to a talking book. Then at level two, we get our invocations, which I would say take all the same ones that I recommended earlier. Or if you feel like there's a couple that are a little more wizardy than the ones that I mentioned, take those. For the Pact Boon, we're going to take Pact of the Tome again and pick some cool wizard cantrips. Because we took the Magic Initiate Wizard and Pact of the Tome, we're getting five Wizard cantrips and two Warlock cantrips. That's really good. That's a lot. Yeah, that's some utility. And this is still at early level? This is by level three. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So at level four, we get our ability score improvement. With this build, I just bumped Charisma up. I didn't take a feat because we got a feat at level one. Um, and at level eight, because we maxed our Charisma by level four with the stats that we rolled, I just put the extra points into dexterity. Now for the Hexblade Warlock, the features that we get there are, first of all, the expanded spells. We get 10 extra spells that other Warlocks don't get. So we have Shield, which is an excellent wizard spell, and Wrathful Smite, which is not. We have Blur, which is a pretty good wizard spell, and Branding Smite, which is not. We have Blink, which is a pretty good wizard spell, an elemental weapon, which is definitely not. Phantasmal Killer, which is an excellent, excellent wizard spell. And Staggering Smite, which is not. And Code of Cold, which is a really good damaging wizard spell. And Banishing Smite, which is not. About half of them are already wizard spells, and the other half are smites, which are just kind of not good for what we're going for, unless we do what you talked about before we started, and that is go for the Tavern Brawler feat as our level one feat instead of Magic Initiate. Yeah, and so I brought that up based on your uh, your build around an urchin character, someone who's been living on the street. I thought, well, couldn't this person be someone who's 
kind of used to having to defend themselves with impromptu tactics and weapons. And if we have a, a smite ability that, as you have said, is based on a weapon attack, we could say that this person already has uh, the Tavern Brawler feats, and they're used to just grabbing whatever's at hand and striking their opponent, and that's the weapon attack that could unlock their smiting ability. Yes, and I really like that idea a lot. So if you end up not wanting to go with the Magic Initiate route, that is definitely another route that you could take. And I kind of like it because I think it it draws a picture of a character who is prone to anger, which maybe helps out in this this person we have we've started to build is that, you know, they, they live on the street, they want knowledge, they think they want knowledge, what they really want is power, and when they are in a pitched battle or if someone really upsets them, they are prone to just fly off the handle, grab whatever is nearby them, and lash out. And this is the, the vector through which the Fiend really actualizes their power. This is where the smites come out. This is where they really, intentionally or otherwise, use the abilities they have been given. Right. For the rest of the Hexblade features, for the first level abilities, Hexblade's Curse and Hex Warrior. Essentially, Hexblade's Curse gives you a curse that you can place on a target, and it helps you against that specific target in combat. And then Hex Warrior allows you to effectively arm yourself for battle with weapons. The sixth level ability is kind of what Hurl Through Hell was where it's not necessarily a point of no return, but it is absolutely evil. And that is, when you slay a humanoid, you can cause its spirit to rise from its corpse as a specter. When the specter appears, it gains temporary hit points equal to half of your warlock level. You roll initiative for the specter, which has its own turns. It obeys your verbal commands, and it gains special bonus to its attack rolls equal to your charisma modifier. Um, the specter remains in your service until the end of your next long rest, at which point it vanishes to the afterlife. When you kill someone, you are ripping the soul out of their body and making it fight for you. Which, yeah, I can see that being a another, like you say, inflicting intentional direct suffering on another sentient is kind of the watershed moment of this evil arc. And maybe that's the same thing. Maybe uh, you whip this out in a fight where your enemy combatants are maybe related, and this character, again, intentionally or otherwise, kills one of these people, rips their soul out, and then makes their spirit kill their own brother. Yeah. You know, something something just, like, off the wall, like, wow, that is borderline unforgivable. You know, like, not only is this person dead and sent to hell, they also have just spent their last few moments on this mortal plane watching their family or close friend be killed by themselves, you know? Right. That is just awful. And I feel like uh, it is like we talked about with the Fiend Pact. It's redeemable. I think once you've done this, once the book convinces you to do this, you have kind of become evil. Yeah, you've kind of hit rock bottom at this point. Yeah, but there is coming back from it. Okay. And I think that realizing what you've done and rejecting the book is kind of the way to go about that. And then the 10th level feature is pretty cool. Your Hexblade's Curse that you got at level 1 gets a little more powerful. Um, when your cursed target hits you with an attack roll, you can use your reaction to roll a d6. On a 4 or higher, the attack instead misses you, regardless of its roll. So you just get a little harder to hit from that one specific target. But yeah, so either way, whether you go with the being adopted by a fiend or stealing a magic talking book. You know, the idea is this young person who 
is trying to gain power, trying to become a wizard, slowly being corrupted into being an evil person and potentially trying to come back from that. In our uh, Moonblade Elf episode, that had a handful of items. I think when we talked about our Loxador, we didn't have a whole lot of items. Uh, does this character have any items they'd be dependent on other than, of course, the key item of this tome? Uh, yeah, so I would say really being lazy, anything that a wizard could use, this character could use, which is to say most wondrous items. I think roleplay-wise, they would be curious about it and want to try to find interesting uses for it. Yeah, I'll correct you. I don't even think that's lazy. I think that's uh, similar to what you are saying before, where you kind of get a grab bag of spells and cantrips. Pick whatever you want. You can't really go wrong. That also gives you, listener, the the freedom to kind of make this a little more your own, is, you know, you, you pick the exact arrangement that gives it the flavor that you want. And so here's another case of there are items that are particularly useful and maybe you can give us a short list if you've got one handy yep but really at the end of the day like you say if it's if it's a magical item it will be alluring to this character anyway so you can't really go wrong right so the ones that i would say are kind of um you definitely want them are any of the robes such as the cape of the mount bank which allows you to cast dimension door which is really cool. And the Robe of the Archmagi, which is a legendary wondrous item, which you won't get until much, much later. But holy crap, is it good. While you're wearing it, your base armor class is 15 plus your dexterity modifier. You have advantage on saving throws against spells and other magical effects. The spell save DC of your spells and your spell attack bonus each increase by two. Wow, this makes you a little more resilient. You're no longer the glass cannon, you're you're pretty formidable when you have that. Right. And then the Rod of the Pact Keeper would be the last one I would recommend. And that is an item for warlocks. Specifically, it requires attunement by a warlock. And it says, while holding this rod, you gain either a plus one, plus two, or plus three bonus, depending on the level of the Rod of the Pact Keeper, to your spell attack rolls and to the saving throw DCs of your warlock spells. In addition, you can regain one Warlock spell slot as an action while holding the rod. So that's just good for any Warlock. Gotcha. So here's a question that I have never thought to ask until just now. Are there any items that we want to avoid? That is an interesting question. I guess the easy answer would be stuff not made for your class. You know, martial martial items are not going to benefit you. I'm thinking more in terms of like, is there anything that is going to clash with a Tome of Shadowfell? Is there some antithesis to that item that will not work with it. So it's interesting you bring that up because there is an item I'm going to look up and read. It is called the Book of Exalted Deeds. The idea that I'm chasing down is what if this character's thread into redemption, the thing that they can eventually reach back to to help pull them out of the pit of I just sent someone to hell or I just ripped out someone's soul and made them do my bidding is this other item that they've picked up. And maybe there is some fun stuff you can do at the table with this. We talked in the uh, Moonblade Elf episode about how you could have the DM or another player play the voice of your weapon. Your weapon has sentience. And if your patron object here, the tome, has sentience, has a voice, you can have somebody else play that. Now, if you're carrying something that could potentially oppose the tome or draw you away from the tome, 
that could be a fun bit of roleplay there that whoever is playing the tome is going to try to convince your character to get rid of it. Yeah. So um, this one is heavily up to DMs who's uh, one of their players is playing a character like this, but that is because the book of exalted deeds is of artifact rarity. So it's not just something you're going to find laying around. Okay. It is an artifact. It is similar in rarity to the one ring. Oh, it is you know, something that a campaign is forged around. I see. So if you are a DM of a player who wants to play a character like this, maybe a player heard this episode, wanted to play the character, and then sent this to you. Hey, like and share, everybody. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe you would want to include the Book of Exalted Deeds into your campaign. Yeah, because it could be an interesting foil to this character. It could be a fun thing to throw in the mix to to make it a little little different, to kind of throw a new angle on it that otherwise might not be there. Right. And here's the thing that made me think of it when you asked if there was anything that was the antithesis to this. And it says, Only a creature of good alignment that is attuned to the book can release the clasp that holds it shut. Once the book is opened, the attuned creature must spend 80 hours of reading and studying the book to digest its contents and gain its benefits. An evil creature that tries to read from the book takes 24d6 radiant damage. This damage ignores resistance and immunity and can't be reduced or avoided by any means. A creature reduced to zero hit points by this damage disappears in a blinding flash and is destroyed, leaving its possessions behind. So if you follow a recommendation, you might just lose your character. And for that, I'm sorry. (laughs) Listen to one of our other episodes and uh, play somebody else. (laughs) So this is really the thing that you want to aspire to if you go down the path where you have forsaken the evil entity. Yeah, maybe this object is your redemption. If you can manage to get it open and not be vaporized by it, it could let you return to a good or at least neutral lifestyle. Yes. It it gives me kind of an idea. Uh, what was that like really mediocre vampire movie a while ago? I think it was called Daybreakers. And in the mythos of that movie, uh, you could be cured of vampirism by momentary exposure to sunlight. There was a character who like crashed his car and when he fell out, he flew through the air into a cave. And that brief moment where he was outside in the sun cooked all the vampire off of him. (laughs) Uh, But here is maybe a similar thing. Maybe this character has been mostly, if not totally corrupted, but in their thirst for knowledge, they try to find a way to, to get this book open. Maybe they take that radiant damage. Maybe it hits them so hard, it doesn't kill them, but it gets them so close they go, wow, you know, I have literally and figuratively seen the light. Yeah. Now, the other interesting idea that I just had is that um, the book, two of the effects of it are, uh, it increases your wisdom score, which is cool because we started out with a character with low wisdom. Yep. And it gives you bonuses to cleric and paladin spells. So here's an idea. What if this character is corrupted by this entity and becomes a warlock up to a certain level and then wants to redeem themselves Mm -hmm. and they're told that the book of exalted deeds is the way to do that so they go on this quest to try to find it to try to use it to become a better person and along the way what if the entity that has been giving them their power starts taking it away yeah and they start to replace some of their warlock levels with paladin levels i like it 
I like it a lot. And then you can straight up convert from a warlock to a paladin. Which is kind of cool. It's still not a wizard. If the character set out to become a wizard, they instead became a warlock, and then they found their redemption in becoming a paladin. That's still kind of cool, I think. Yeah, yep, that could be interesting. As I alluded at the beginning of the episode, I actually kind of approached this character differently than you did. Your your character arc kind of sounds almost opposed to mine, so this will be kind of interesting as we bounce ideas off each other here. Yeah. So when I started thinking about this character, I thought back to a quote from um, this little indie game I played once. It's called Skyrim. You might have heard of it. <laughs> there is a character in that game called uh, Parthenax, uh, one of the dragons, and he has a quote that goes, What is better, to be born good or to overcome your evil nature through great effort. And I kind of grabbed that as my character thesis. I thought, okay, that right there is kind of where I want to build this character's arc. That's the center point that I want to orbit. This character will be the player's opportunity to pick a side of that or statement and prove it. And then I went and split it again down the ideas of, does this character know what has happened to them? Which, by the build you mentioned earlier today, is already a settled matter this character does not know. Yeah. But because I already wrote my stuff down, I'm going to go with what I wrote anyway. And so let me just kind of go through some of the ideas that I wrote down here. So if the character does not know what has happened to them, the campaign can be their journey of discovery where they embody the first half of our character thesis. It is better to be born good. On this track, the character is already good. They're an uncorrupted, optimistic youth with big plans for the future. They have nothing to prove to anyone because they already know that they're good. Throughout the campaign, they can take measures or maybe even take pains to point out that they have never been evil. They were born good. And that constant struggle to maintain goodness is kind of what defines them. I worry that this will eventually lead the character to a confrontation with their own corruption. But that could be that climactic phase like you were talking about with a hurl through hell or rending and binding a spirit. Yeah. Uh, and this is really where they have to prove that they were born good and that's all they should really have to be. I guess that's kind of a way of overcoming it, which stands in opposition to the statement of it is better to be born good, but I'm not a writer. I'm just an idiot with a podcast. So you guys figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> the other one that I, the other direction I took it was uh, if the character does know. And uh, for this one, I decided to take a look at this character through the lens of the stages of grief. Okay. They know what has happened to them. They're fully aware of it, and it has weighed on them. So I, I kind of went through the, the categorical stages that we're all probably familiar with and kind of wrote out some ways that you could punctuate this character's arc with it. So in the denial phase, the first stage of grief, we say that the character really can't conceptualize what has happened. They don't believe that this person that they trusted has corrupted them, has, has, you know, condemned them to this life. It's just not a thing they can, they can accept. They deny it. Uh, even as evidence mounts that they have been betrayed, they deny it. Or, you know, maybe even, even a harder denial, maybe they just think they're hallucinating. They're not even convinced it's real. The stage after that comes in anger. I mentioned this when we were talking about feats, and I mentioned them picking the Tavern Brawler ability. Yeah. That they're maybe prone to, you know, flashes of anger. Uh, this character lashes out with their power intentionally or otherwise. This could be a good phase for rubbing up against other players in the party. So right here could be where you start getting that antagonistic rapport. Let's say your party already has a paladin. Let's say someone in your party already has 
uh, the Book of Exalted Deeds and is trying to save the character. Maybe they also know what's going on and they're trying to bring him over. And because our character is still early in their stage of grief, they're still coming off of denial into anger. They're lashing out at this person. They're, you know, leave me alone. You're wrong. You know, I haven't been lied to. I haven't been betrayed. You're, you're trying to sell me on something. I then went to take some notes on the bargaining stage, which typically uh, comes after anger. But to be fair, bargaining might have been what got them into this position in the first place, so maybe we leave this one alone. <laughs> Guilt. The character is aware of what they are and what danger they pose to those around them. They may seek to isolate themselves from the party, either to hide their shame or to protect those they care about. I couldn't really pick a way to take that. I'm not sure. That, I think, kind of goes to the player. How do you think your character will handle their own guilt? You know, once they do get over the denial of it and they go, no, this, this is real. This is where I am. This is what I am. Are they going to try to protect the rest of the party because they care about the party? Or are they going to try to protect themselves by just going into some kind of hiding? There's a stage of depression. And, you know, we're all depressed these days. You can figure this one out. <laughs> you just take some notes out of your own diary and just sprinkle them over the character. It'll, it'll work out just fine. <laughs> and then at the tail end, we have finally acceptance. Uh, I would think this is the stage that most embodies the second half of our character thesis. It is better to overcome your evils. By this stage, the character has come to understand their power and their position, and they take actions to remedy it. Either they have learned to control their urges, as we have said, maybe you found an artifact that will help you undo the power that has kind of taken over you. Or they've, um, I wonder if maybe there's a way they have devised their own monkey's paw. Maybe they have their own little method they have sorted out where they understand that their power compels them to do great evils and to do horrible, terrible stuff, but they've figured out a way to try to bring a bit of balance into it. Maybe, here's another one in this already reference-laden episode, they've kind of got the Hulk aspect. They know that if somebody really gets under their skin, if someone makes them angry or, or they are given an opportunity, they might accidentally lash out with their power and cause a great deal of harm. And because they know that's a possibility, they spend all of their lucid hours trying to do as much good as possible. Yeah, I I really like that. I like that a lot. So that's that's what I had written for this episode. I actually wrote for this episode. I'm proud of myself. <laughs> you did more than I did. <laughs> I'm proud of you too. <laughs> I really like all of that. Oh, you always say that. No, I, I do. I was sitting here nodding, realizing that no one can see me nodding uh, the entire time. But no, for, for my end, um, speaking of references... I, my whole idea, I kind of got from, as you already referenced earlier, uh, Harry Potter, mm -hmm. the whole, you're a wizard, Harry. And what if Hagrid was actually evil? Ooh, I love it. And also Anakin Skywalker. Another mishandled, but I think ultimately worthwhile example. Right. Because he started out wanting to do good yep. and was ultimately pushed back from his desire to do good and was taken in by someone who believed in him, who wanted the best for themselves, but pretended to want the best for him. Yeah. And I think his character also is, is a good example of someone who had good intentions but couldn't stand up to the crushing reality around them. Yeah. You know, the tragedies they faced they weren't prepared for them. Right. They had the skill, they had the power, 
but they were not emotionally ready for for what happened to them and that's kind of what tipped them over into into their own corruption yep you know someone was there to catch them and then a horrible life event was the tabletop that they tripped over yep yeah that was that was kind of where i came from with the character idea okay was um you know this uh building up to this final moment of once anakin becomes darth vader can he be redeemed and when he's faced with that path of redemption, does he kill his own son or does he kill the person that turned him into what he became? Because, yeah, I, I do ultimately think that is a good arc. Yeah. Three and a half, four movies of not very good content ultimately <laughs> contains a good character arc. Yeah. And that might be exactly what you have with this character. I think you, I think you the player, have uh, a lot of opportunity to make a very a very unique and very flavorful character with this admittedly not exotic template that we've made, but still something usable, something playable that gives you, I think, some good opportunities. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Character Sheet. We hope this episode has inspired you to create and play someone fun. This show's music was created and provided by Nicholas Mason. Find his work on youtube.com slash at Nicholas Mason. Contact us at btcs.hosts at gmail.com with your questions and comments. Join us again next episode for more Legends in the Making. Also, I, I have a bone to pick with you real quick before we move on. Uh -huh. TJ, you and I both know we run a very highbrow show here. And you come in and you tell me that we're going to take an ability called Stinking Cloud. And you just leave the table open for fart <laughs> jokes. <laughs> I need you to understand the level of restraint it took for me <laughs> to not make the easiest, stupidest fart joke. Yeah. That's it. Yep. Just, okay. you know.